Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Today, I have the pleasure of having a special guest on today, Dr. Fred Luskin, who is the author of a book called Forgive for Good out of Stanford. And he and I connected to a common friend, friend about five or six years ago. And a patient gave me his book about seven years ago. When his book came into the practice, then my patients started to heal at a level that I had never dreamed possible. And it was consistent. So of course, I read the book and started utilizing the book as part of the process of the, the healing journey. And then Fred and I got connected and we've done workshops together back at the Omega Institute in New York. And we still work together off and on, have lunch together once in a while. But he, I have learned just a tremendous amount from him on forgiveness. He's done major research projects on forgiveness through Stanford, which, which is the basis of his book. And it's a remarkable insight into forgiveness that I personally was incredibly helped by. It was really a huge transformation for me to read his concepts. So I'd like to welcome Fred Lessing to the show. In the first part of the show, we're going to focus on how anger manifests itself and the need for forgiveness and how to recognize it. And then we'll do another segment on actually how to go through the process of forgiveness. So Fred, welcome to the show. It's always nice to see you and uh, look like you're doing well. Thank you. Um, you know, I do remember us meeting and, and I remember we had another number of conversations and I remember that you were both more aware and more interested in anger than most people and, and willing to explore your own um, in a way that was unusual in my experience. That um, most of the people that I know or I've worked with um, don't like to go deep into their own, um, not just pain, but the truth of their reactions. Right. And, and it's, it's one of the reasons why this whole field is so difficult is people rarely want to admit, one, how pissed off they are, two, how entitled they feel, three, how self-absorbed they are, all which contribute to this, this hardness of unforgiveness. How do you, uh, how did you happen to run across this yourself? I think you told me that you've been really on this forgiveness mode since you're about 15 years old. Say that again. I mean, how do you personally come across the whole need for forgiveness? Because your journey is also unusual. And I, I think you told me your journey started when you were a teenager. You know, um, not to an answer your question directly. Um, for me, the, it came a long time ago. But the key question here, and... I know you come at it from a more medical point of view as a doctor, but the key issue about this whole field, I mean, and I respect your work in, in pain and all that, but when we don't metabolize our woundedness, no matter when it starts, no matter how it's maintained, um, we carry it forward. Right. And, and in your work, we carry it forward as physical pain. Right. But in, in my work, um, we destroy the world. 
I'm sorry. That, that, no, that we all have wounds that we have not let go of, absolved, owned. And so we use those wounds as the reason why we wound other people and destroy the environment. Gotcha. And, and it's, it's like, it's such an untalked about phenomenon. Why do you think people, so do you think that's the reason why people don't want to look at them, look at themselves that deeply? I mean, why do you think, you, as you mentioned earlier, people really don't look very deeply into their own anger and woundedness? Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, there are so many reasons. We're not smart as a species. We don't want responsibility for our own behavior and our own reactions. Um, there are financial interests that do everything they can to obscure what people say and do. And, it, and it, it's frightening at its core to, um, to own the fact that we've all been mistreated, we've all had suffering, we've all had physical insult, and, and th that they are unavoidable parts of life. In your book, you point out some of the manifestations of anger, and the two that struck out with me, among several other, I hope you'll mention, but the one that caught my attention originally was what you called the grievance story. Could you, could you talk about the grievance story for a couple minutes? Well, the grievance story is how we personalize our own experience of, of being a mortal, frail, vulnerable human being. So we take an event that we didn't like or caused us pain that we haven't released. And we turn it into both a reason why our life is not successful and a weapon to be used to punish anybody we think caused that or anybody who is insensitive to our particular brand of suffering. We, you know, our little group has figured out that um, at some level, we create a grievance story by taking what happened way too personally, not owning responsibility for our reactions, and then solidifying those experiences into like a portable victimhood that we can carry around and bring out when needed. You know, like okay, here's my portable victimhood that I can talk about with you, but I have a different portable victimhood to talk about with somebody else. But here it is when I needed to explain why I'm either not happy, my life hasn't worked, or why it is that I'm on edge. And rather than take responsibility for our failed navigation of life, or even that there are things in life we don't understand or need to find a deeper place in us to deal with them. We have these little portable victimhoods that we can then bring out and either expect restitution for or defend our need to pay it forward.
you know, to say, you did this to me, this group did this to me, this happened to me. Therefore, I at this moment do not have to be kind. Like I have this portable excuse as to why it is that I'm not responsible for what I'm saying now. Those insights <clears throat> led me when I had them to become at huge variance with the field and training that I had received, which was almost institutionalized victimhood. You know, okay. that you could blame your parents, you could blame your grandparents, you could blame, you could blame everybody. Past events clearly influence us. Right. But when we don't add, like, okay, I had terrible parents, they did all this awful stuff, or I had these terrible experiences that may have even rewired my brain, and I then screwed up the next 20 years of my life, like me. And I think you you find a grievance story that caught my attention years ago. I've not read your book for a while, but I think you define a grievance story if you tell a story to somebody else where you're the object or the victim of that story three times, that's how you define a grievance story. And actually, it was Babs, my wife, who called me out on this one. I'm going, I don't agree with the story. I was wrong. And then I remember the definition. And it really, for me, was a huge game changer, realized how much I was I like, I hadn't heard your term before, portable victimhood, but that's a really accurate term. I was really good at this. I had a whole, you know, whole repertoire of, of victimhood in retrospect. I had a huge number of stories. And uh, I think that's a really interesting idea. But is, is that, is that, am I correct in that if you, def, if you, how you define a grievance story? All, all stories have a purpose. Okay. And, and we act, we try to act innocent of that. Like we try to, we try to make believe that we're telling the truth. Okay. When we're not, there's no, we, there's no investment in an accurate representation. There's a purpose to a story. So you can't separate the story from its purpose. So the cause is a purpose, not the story is an implementation of that purpose. So many of us create purposes for those stories that we're not fully aware of. Like I was a helpless kid. And so whatever happened to me, you know, is, is not my responsibility. Some of the stories are flat out true, but they, they're purposeful. Our whole language center is purposeful. It's not, it's not a jury. It's not designed to ferret out the truth. It's designed for an agenda. Okay. And, and so when you hear somebody's story, if you're quiet a little bit and you don't get sucked up into their story or into their content, then very quickly you see what the point of the story is. Right. You know, if they tell you four times that this was a bad person, then you know why they're telling the story. Right. I also have been observing, I think this is obviously true in your literature, not so much apparent in orthopedic surgery, but people really bond on these mutually, um, I mean, everybody has a grievance story, but people really spend a lot of time telling these stories to each other, and I think oh, it's yeah. a strong bond. I think one of the terms is called woundology, is that, one of the, is that a correct assessment of that? Well, it turns out that 
at the beginning of a wound or a loss or a grievance, it's essential to tell your story. To right. Because we can't function without support. So there, there, there are, to me, two clear reasons for those story shares. One is to get a shared humanity of, wow, you're not alone. This is not just happening to you. That, you know, that this is a common human experience and there's empathy and care. But the second point of telling the story is where the problems come in because people then give you advice. They tell you what to do with your story in order for it to maintain and become and live as a grievance. You generally have to ignore the advice. I so see. Almost everybody will get reasonable things to do to make their lives better with their story. The ones who get stuck are the ones who don't want to take or can't hear or are occluded from that advice, or they're so wedded to the story that they just flat out reject the advice. Like, you don't understand, you've never been there, blah, 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 blah. Right. So the, the problem comes when you reject the advice but develop the secondary gain of either sympathy for the story or absolution for things you've done or haven't done, then the story takes on another agenda and serves to protect you from either self-examination or consequences. Well, one of my observations is that it sort of becomes people's, people almost, their whole identity becomes that story in a way after a time. I mean, that's, it, I mean, not their whole identity, but a good part of their identity, they, they sort of become their story. And their whole life starts revolving around that simple story. David, the hardest thing is, again, to recognize deep in your bones that the story is a construct. Gotcha. That you, you want to you take it a lot less seriously. You want to take it often as just blah, blah, blah. And that the, the true empathy is in seeing the stuck human being addicted to a story or unwilling to examine the story or unwilling to let go of the story or even unwilling enough to take in information that they can provide like other, other things around the story. So just from the work we do, the simplest thing to do with someone who has a, like a resolute story, is just ask them one of a couple things. One, like right now, just tell it a little differently. Just shift anything in the story so that you see you have wiggle room. Okay. Two, tell it from the point of view of compassion for your suffering, that's all. Just, you don't have to change anything else about the story, but just talk about, wow, how hard this was, how difficult, how much pain it caused you, but only from the point of view of self-compassion. Okay. Or three, right in the middle of the story, stop yourself for a second and just remind yourself of something you're grateful for. So each of these things can show people in 30 seconds 
that it's just a story, not the story. Right. People, people want everybody else to believe that their A story is actually the story. Like this is the only way we can look at it. This is all you need to know about it. This is the you know Moses coming down with the ten tablets. Here's one of the tablets. Right. That's where the story is so corrosive. It serves a purpose. You also made a comment at one of the seminars, which I thought was fascinating, which is along what you just talked about. You made a, you made a comment about um, it's fine to blame your parent to life until you're 18 years old, but after that age, why it's your role to say, look, I'm screwing it up myself. Do you remember making that comment, which I thought was remarkably clear? But um, I didn't catch that. I'm the sorry. The comment was, we're at a, one of the Omega workshops, and you made a point that it's fine to blame your parents until you're 18 years old. But at age 18 years old, you took over responsibility for, for your own life and you continued to screw up your own life. You remember that comment? No. <laughs> I, I mean, that for whatever reason, that one really... I, I was probably brain dead at the time. <laughs> no, it, was re, it just stuck with me because, I mean, yeah, I mean, your parents do have an impact on you. But the reality is, at some point, you, you said the age 18... That, yeah, we, t we took over our own lives and we continue to screw up our, our own lives. And that to me is what you're saying is that, you know, we hold on to these stories in the past. We continue to use them as our filter for life and we continue to interfere with our own potential self-development. Let me, let me try again to, to like push you towards what I think is the really important question. Okay. Um, you deal with people in chronic pain. Right. You know at some level their story is an impediment to their well-being. Right. What, 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 after all these years, what I can now see is, how do I put it, the, the almost poignant compassion of people hurting themselves by being unable to let go of something that is harmful to them. And their almost pathological unwillingness to touch their own vulnerability. And, and they, they put these stories, they construct all sorts of dramas around an absolute fear of being vulnerable, naked, grieving, lost, confused, small, helpless. And they put this artifice around it of this person wasn't nice, it's not my fault, um, this was unfair, my leg hurts, whatever it is. But inside of that, they're, they're aching, I believe, for some kind of deeply compassionate witness who can remind them that they have incredible empathy for the event or whatever it is that began this process, but now equal empathy for their unimagined stuckness in this process. Right. 
Well, I also noticed in my own personal experience. That's the key issue with how anger fits on this and what the, the desperate role of forgiveness is. Yeah, because I mean, I found out that anger, you know, is a powerful feeling which covers up that vulnerability of feeling anxious. In my own journey, my anger was in the form of perfectionism. Yes. And when that got stripped away, my anxiety was unbelievable, right? And I also right. had well, patients actually happens pretty frequently where different people say, look, um, I'd rather be angry than anxious. They just say it. Or they start giving up their anger and they start feeling anxious and they, they drop out of the process almost instantly. One, one of the things I really appreciate about your, the things I've read from you is your real honesty about anxiety. That I've, I've noticed that I, you're not running from this deep, inescapable part of being a human being. Right. And, and, and that anxiety, um, from my, my understanding, both physiologically and psychologically, is is core. I mean, we're, we're organisms, you know, in, an, in a hostile world whose primary nervous system purpose is to keep us safe. But even if you look at Erickson's first stage of psychosocial development, the first question is safety. So when Erickson formulated his eight or seven or eight stages of development, the first one is, are you safe or not? Mm -hmm. And everything builds on that. You know, if, if you can't answer yes to, you know, the basic tiny tot, like, am I safe? Do I get my needs met? Do people love me? But that absolute core question of, am I safe? First of all, there's no 100% answer that yes, you are, because in truth, we're not. But secondly, almost every one of us comes with some childhood, like abandonment and loss and something. So anxiety is, is forever core about that deep question of, am I safe? Right. <clears throat> and one of the answers to how we make ourselves try to be more safe is these crazy stories we make up about everything. You know, Jesus will keep me safe or having certain political views will keep me safe. Or, you know, if I don't ever grieve my wound, but stay angry, I'll be safe. We're all trying to answer with mostly unskillful means Safety, anxiety, that's just, it's just core. Well, I appreciate your insights. I mean, just to review our session, we basically are focused on the grievance story. And you brought some points today, which I had not really thought about, particularly this need to feel safe. I think that's really remarkably clear. Um, and we, we they, they do get held on to. And actually, the biggest block to healing is pretty simple, is actually can you get past the anger or not? The rest of it doesn't matter. Right. The whole process exactly. is not a self-help concept. It's basically a framework that allows you to clarify your thinking 
so you can find your own solution, but the solution always lies in your particular version of actually forgiveness or letting go. Thank you, David. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.